Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, a certified occupational and clinical therapist, and Pete Duran, a certified podcast host. CPH, look it up. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Way too long. I feel it more in my legs and I feel it more in my arms. And when I and it's like my walking distance is been reduced. So it's that it's that kind of thing, as opposed to the neuro fatigue, which is one of those things where it would get where it, when it kicks in and it doesn't kick in as nearly as often as it used to. But when it kicks in, it's like I've just suddenly hit the wall and my brain won't let me do anything else. And it's time to go to sleep with neuro fatigue. There is no pushing through it. There is no. I can just get another half hour out of this like I, I used to do in college. There's no, I can I can just push through and I can marshal my resources. It's like, nope, with the neuro fatigue, once you're done, you're done. And the only solution is to stop and go to bed and go take a nap. Well, well Bill, that's, uh, I hit record because where you were headed, I think, is where a lot of people who've never experienced a stroke or have never had a family member don't understand. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different, world that you're now living in. And folks, welcome, by the way, to the No Plateau podcast with our very special guest, Bill Monroe, who is a podcast host himself. And his podcast is called The Strokecast. So it's like we're we're with our people here. It's, and it is. <laughs> and Henry, welcome thing. as usual. Henry Hoffman, yes. our esteemed co-host. So Bill, we're on this journey because I think like you, we want to help other people be aware of not only stroke prevention, but how to handle the stroke once it happens and, and help caregivers and everyone kind of understand this new world as we described. But when I read your profile, I felt like you were Henry's spirit animal. <laughs> so, it, and by far the most incredible podcast guested voice we've had on the show as well. So let's get into it. I want to find out. So this happened, your stroke happened back in, in 2017. Walk us through. Yep. Just celebrated my stroke anniversary. That's a thing. It is a thing. So uh, you don't say congratulations for that, do you? Do you say congratulations? Because I mean, it depends. It depends on your approach. Exactly. It's not. It's not celebrating having a stroke. It's celebrating. It's celebrating surviving a stroke and being able to then build a new life beyond that, based on that. And it's about going forward and developing those resources and those skills to make. Yeah, in your profile. So congratulations, congratulations is great. And you, you, what you word that I think is so important for people to remember, it's not a six month, 12 month or 18 month process. You'll wake up every morning in this fatigue. And, and by the way, you mentioned that you had had, had COVID and how that kind of kicked your butt even again. Let's step back for a minute. And you know, what were you doing on June 3rd, 2017? I was sleeping. I woke up at about 7.15 in the morning and it was a Saturday. So, I mean, if I'm up at 7.15 on a Saturday, you already know something has gone <laughs> terribly wrong. But, but yeah, I got up to use the bathroom and my left arm felt a little weird. I figured I, it had fallen asleep or I had slept on it wrong or I had just hurt myself in my sleep because I was in my mid-40s and hurting yourself in your sleep is a thing that happens. And I figured it would just come back on over the next few minutes. And it didn't. 
then I started to have some trouble walking and my left leg started to go offline. I took care of business, caught myself in the mirror and saw that the left side of my face was starting to, you know, slip off. I could still speak, which was good. And I made it back to the bedroom. I woke up my girlfriend and I told her, I think I need an ambulance. I mean, at that point, I had an idea that this was stroke. What had popped into my mind was about five to 10 years earlier, I had seen this viral video of a reporter at an awards show, and she was conducting interviews or doing an on-location report on camera live, and suddenly she started speaking gibberish and then just collapsed on camera. And I remembered a lot of the online discussion at the time was that it looks like she had a stroke. And so that's what threw that that word up into my vocabulary. Yeah. So my girlfriend called the ambulance, called 911. They were there very quickly. I happened to be, my apartment at the time was located at sort of the nexus of all of the major medical facilities in Seattle on a neighborhood called First Hill or Pill Hill, depending on who you're talking to. And not called that because of the illegal substances, <laughs> although yeah, there, there was certainly plenty of that in the area. And the paramedics came up. They checked me out and they're like, yes, I think you're right. So they loaded me onto the stretcher. Somehow they got two paramedics, me on a stretcher and my girlfriend in around a couple of really tight corners and into the elevator to get us down to the waiting ambulance. And I have no idea how they managed to fit us into there, but they wheeled me out to the street, into the ambulance, and then they asked me, what hospital I want to go to, which seemed like a, I mean, at this point, we're pretty sure my brain is actively dying. So should I really be the one making these decisions? Right. I mean, I'm not sure I'm best suited to that. But so my next thought was, well, a few years ago, my girlfriend had had surgery at Swedish and she didn't die. So that was good enough for me. <laughs> So I said Swedish and they uh, zipped us over there. It was, I think it, it was like, maybe it was two miles, $900 ambulance ride. I think it's cheaper than Uber surge pricing, but not <laughs> by much. And yeah, I mean, we get there and they pause briefly just inside the ambulance bay. I'm assuming we actually paused. I'm not a hundred percent positive, but in that brief moment, I ended up with a hospital ID bracelet a couple of IVs, and then we were off to the CT scanner. And, you know, Bill, from that point forward, and, and it sounds to me like you were a lot more coherent than some people would be during this process, right? Like you're, you're seeing what's happening around you. You wake up yeah. the next day, you talk to your girlfriend, you've received the news, this is what happened, Bill, you described the stroke, basal ganglia, and, you know, you kind of lost the use of your left arm and leg. You were, were, you, were you still able to speak the entire time, even after you kind of came out of the stroke? Yes, I was slurring a little bit from the facial paralysis, but I never really lost language. Pretty much a vast majority of my deficits were physically related. And since it was, it was a clot in the right MCA, the middle cerebral artery feeding the basal ganglia on the right side. So, I mean, that gave, suddenly I'm, you know, my, I had switched sort of into emergency solve the problem kind of mode as sort of the left side of my brain, the, that logic side just sort of comes to, sure. comes to the fore. 
and starts doing that. But yeah, I was, I was aware the whole time as this stuff was going on. Yeah. So that's a fascinating experience. We hear these a lot, but clearly you, you put, you put a fun twist on it with your comedic explanations. And so you must've had in your past life, a lot of jobs involving humor or maybe not. Can you spend a few minutes talking about what were you doing as far as work prior to the stroke and what are you doing right now? Because I know that you have this wonderful stroke cast. So if you can kind of just share with the audience, what are you doing professionally and how did you get to the point to starting your successful stroke cast? Sure, sure, sure. So a couple of things. My background, my professional background is in sales, marketing, and training. So think product and brand evangelism. I... And even prior to that, I paid for college on speech and debate scholarships. So getting up there and speaking and being with a microphone is something I've always been very comfortable with. I got into retail sales shortly after a couple of years after college and at Ultimate Electronics and then CompUSA, both of which completely out of business now. And I was already doing training and public present public speaking in those stores. And then I, when I met, went to CompUSA, especially during the grand opening in Boise, Idaho, we had a local Toshiba representative come down to train our store. And she was based in Seattle. So she covered five states in the Northwest. And it sounded like she had an awesome job going around and visiting stores and doing trainings. And for technology, I really loved mobile computing in 1998. I mean, this was the coolest thing mm -hmm. ever. and. I told her that it sounded like she had an awesome job. She eventually became pregnant, went out on maternity leave, and decided not to come back. So she passed my resume along. And in 1998, that's how I joined Toshiba, first covering just the stores of the Northwest. Then through dozens of other corporate reorgs, I was creating an entire national sales training program, which was really more of a tactical marketing group. So we would go out and we would do training sessions or we would support box opening nights for schools that did deployments of devices, or I would go ahead and work the booth at CES and Comdex and Educause and the other big trade shows, or I would go out to QVC in Pennsylvania and they'd put me on air talking about selling laptops. Wow, that's awesome. And that is an, um, that's an amazing thing. 2014, I left there and took a job with Microsoft, where my job was to teach retail salespeople how to sell <laughs> Windows 10 and how to sell Microsoft Office. Corporate reorgs come and go. 2016, I am laid off. And because I've been in consumer electronics for all of my career, I already had a, had a layoff plan in place, which was when that happens, I was going to go ahead and start a podcast about public speaking. And so I did that just within a couple months of being laid off because I figured when I get a job interview and they ask, what have you been doing since you got laid off? I wanted to be able to say something other than, you know, trying to get caught up on Flash and Arrow <laughs> on Netflix. So I started the Two Minute Talk Tips podcast where I help people become more effective public speakers in as little as two minutes a week. Interesting. So the idea was that every episode yeah, every episode began with a simple, actionable tip to be a more effective speaker. And then we got into a deeper discussion about public speaking. So that was going on. I was job hunting. Six months after I was laid off, I had to make the 
I made the most important financial decision in my life, which was to pay for my Cobra out of pocket when I suddenly had to pay for my health insurance out yep. of pocket, thousand dollars yeah. a month. But just a couple months after that, it turned out that I went ahead and had the stroke and that thousand dollars a month saved me probably $200,000 in medical sure. You are the first person, you're the first person, Bill, where I've heard that Cobra actually was a good thing. <laughs> usually, usually everyone's complained about Cobra and how expensive it is and what a ripoff and they can't wait to transition out of it. That's the first ROI on Cobra that was successful for my yeah, pub public service uh, message. I think in the past, people might lament it. But when you look at what healthcare is on the market today, Cobra usually is a pretty good deal. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, so Bill, with absolutely. so then transitioning forward, you suffered your stroke. Clearly, yeah. that's where you got your podcast voice, if you will, and the background to do podcasts. At what point did you, after your stroke, decide, you know what? I'm going to do StrokeCast. Well, I was in the hospital and I figured, okay, I'd been a podcast listener for a long time. I had my own show, so I want to learn stuff. I'm not exactly getting up and running around here because it takes two people to get me into my wheelchair. So let's start learning about stroke from podcasts. And I went looking for them and I found only two shows. I found one called Enable Me, which is a show out of Australia. They've been undergoing some transitions lately. And I found another out that comes from the Stroke Comeback Center in Vienna, Virginia, called Slow Road to Better, which is one of the best names for a stroke mm -hmm. podcast out there. And that's a show that's really all about aphasia. So great shows, but not really helpful. And so I was going through this. And a couple months later, I was like, well, pff, heck with it. I'll start my own. Oh. And so Stroke was in June of 2017. First episode of StrokeCast dropped in mid-February of 2018. We were From there, we were off to the races. That's amazing. I was catching up on some of your podcasts because I am an active listener, and thank you for starting the podcast. In one of your recent episodes, you talk about this concept that I 100% agree with. Uh, I think you call it, don't be the best, be better. Don't get best, don't get, get better. Don't get best, get better. And that reminds us a lot of, you know, don't let enemy good be the enemy of great. You know, we, I did a, a LinkedIn post on therapists need to create not long-term goals, not short-term goals, which are usually used for insurance companies, but they need to create micro goals. And that's something that we don't currently do where whether it's build a, a little twitch of your finger for some movement or a flicker of your toe or just a little upper extremity ring, you know, a few degrees of range of motion. Those things you don't typically document, yet they happen. They're small wins. They're victories that we should build upon so we can keep the optimism going. Because a lot of times we're just focused on insurance and functional goals and you don't really see the progress. So I really resonated with that comment. Can you elaborate a little bit on that thought process that you have? Sure, sure. There's a couple of things to come out of that. First of all, the whole idea of being the best, I mean, and that's, I mean, that's a Sounds great in theory, but in order to be the best, that means everybody else has to be worse than you are. And it means everybody else who's trying to be the best is in competition with you. So right away, by focusing on the best, then we are already undermining the idea of teamwork and working with one another and working with colleagues and working with other survivors because not everybody, because only one can be the best. We've also set up this binary decision process where if I'm not the best, then I'm failing. And again, that doesn't encourage us to 
continue going on. Instead, that's why I think it's so important to focus on being better because all you have to do is try and get just a little bit better every day. Even if you can't even notice the result, but if you can just get a little bit better every day, just a tiny, the tiniest amount over time, that's going to add up to tremendous progress. And you can be successful. You can get a little bit better or you can make efforts to get a little bit better each day. So we've reduced now the odds of failure. We've reduced the chances of being in that negative place of losing as part of this process. Because that's the thing. As long as you're making that effort to get a little bit better, that's going to add up over time. And just simply the process of putting in that work is going to have an impact overall. It's going to be, maybe you can't move your hand more, but that's okay. The fact that you were able to, you did two or three or four repetitions, that's adding into that bundle of the thousands that you need to do. And you could be discouraged at the idea of having to do 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 repetitions just to get, to get a hand back or to get fingers back. But you know what? If you look at it as I have to do 30,000, you're not going to do it. If you can just do five today, maybe 10 today, suddenly by the end of the week, you've done 70. By the end of the month, you have done hundreds of them. And over time, that can add up. Ultimately, being the best puts your results dependent, makes your results dependent on other people's failures to achieve their goals. Getting a little bit better puts it within your control and within your realm. The other thing I want to say on that, when you talk about micro goals, I mean, that is super important. I think one of the things I've encountered when I talk with OTs and PTs and even other survivors on this matter is one of the things that I've seen as frustrates therapists is when we get these small results, we get these small improvements, they get really excited, but the survivors don't. And the reason for that, I think, is we come at this from a different baseline because our therapists, when they first encounter us, they are at our worst. We're at, we're at our worst. We're at our weakest. We need two people to help us get out of the bed. And so the slightest improvement is a huge improvement from where we were. But from the survivor perspective, just a week ago or just two weeks ago, we were running around. We were at the top of our game. Maybe we were running organizations. Maybe we were running a household. We had all these other people depending on us. We were getting up and going about our business and doing all of this. That's our baseline. And suddenly we've come back to zero. So we can get a little twitch. All we see is that is so far away from where we were just a few days ago. When a therapist sees that little twitch, they see us, we have gotten so much better from where we were yesterday. So I think we end up with this disconnect between the therapist's perspective and the survivor's perspective based on what we know or what we define as the norm. I think that's something that's important to keep in mind for therapists when working with patients is to as strong as that progress is and as much as we need to celebrate that progress, we need to also recognize from the survivor's perspective that, you know, they have a very different frame of reference on success and improvement. 
And so I think that can provide a little bit of an emotional discount. Bill, I got to I got to tell you, Carly's taking furious notes right now because there were there were 12, <laughs> 12 bits in there that we could cut out. And I'll be honest, you could put them in any podcast, let alone a stroke podcast. So I, I spent 10 years and ran a company in the fitness space. And two things jumped out at me that you just said, this concept of better versus best, 100% on board with that. I love the fact that better is in your control. Best is measured against somebody else and you don't control that. I also like the concept that for you to be best, someone else can't be. And I like that concept as well. But this idea that the reference point that you have as a survivor and the therapist reference point are different, that hadn't occurred to me because in the fitness world, I'm usually dealing with someone who spent years getting in decline, right? They've spent years putting on weight or their health's decline. They don't remember the running around phase. And trainers, they feed into that, right? So walking a half mile and then walking a mile is a big deal. Man, I'm walking a half mile for a stroke survivor and then walking a half mile plus one step is a big deal. But to you, yesterday was normal. Today is just very, very different. And that's really good for not only therapists here, but caregivers to remember that as well, to understand that's your perspective. And I think it's so hard, like we talked about at the show, at the beginning of the show, unless you've experienced this, you can't understand where you're you're starting from scratch and people don't remember that. They don't understand this is literally starting over in many aspects. It's great perspective, Bill. I've become an avid listener now. Yeah, Bill, I got to tell you that that was awesome, especially as a therapist, because you're right. Your baseline is your what you were doing a few weeks ago, a month ago, two months ago. And sometimes we we get desensitized from that and we're just following our protocols, knowing we want a little bit of range of motion, reduce some spasticity, get you to be more independent with your walking. But there's a long road here, right? And the rehab process can be tough. And I wanted to get your opinion on that. What's your opinion? regarding the current rehab process. I'm talking the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, believe me, there's a lot of good going on in the rehab process, but there's a hell of a lot of ugly. And I want to get your opinion regarding, I know you have not only your personal opinion, but you've talked to hundreds of stroke survivors. So maybe thousands. So what, what is it? Give me the good, bad, and ugly about the rehab process at this point. The thing about the rehab process is it provides a lot of value in that structure. And I got to say, I enjoyed my time in rehab. I did get angry at my PT a few times, which, you know what, apparently if you're not getting angry at a PT from time to time, your PT is not working hard enough. But I really liked working with my therapists inpatient. And I'm still connected with most of them through social. And and I've had a couple of them as guests on the show. Megan Larson, my PT, talking about high-intensity gait training. Emily uh, Mason, back in the early days of the show where you know she was one of my amazing OTs. Olivia, who I did, ends up do, appearing on a commercial for the hospital a couple of years later, talking about my experience. I've had some, had some absolutely wonderful people. What I didn't like about the inpatient therapy experience, and I get it, there's restrictions, there's timing, but when you build a relationship with this core team, sometimes they have to, over the course of that month, they gotta just swap in other therapists Mm -hmm. for scheduling reasons, other OTs or other PTs. And some of them are working hard, but we don't have that relationship, we don't have that continual progress happening. And some of them are just, it feels like they're just sort of phoning it in where, you know, you'd have a PT who is like, okay, we're just going to put you on the exercise bike for now, instead of working with you on the math table for a while. And 
for doing that. So I think that's one of those things that gets under discussed is the power of the personal relationship that a survivor, a patient develops with their PTs and with their OTs and with their speech therapists. And that, again, we don't talk about it, but that is also one of those areas where there's got to be a lot of discussion and thought given to that relationship. And that's a very sensitive area. I mean, when my OT first thing, you know, when I first full day of inpatient rehab, she comes into the room, we talk for a little bit. Next thing I know, she's wheeling me off into the shower. And I'm like, you know what, this is the, the you know, sort of the first time in my life I've had somebody else there at the shower with me for non-recreational purposes. And that is a very personal, very intimate type of connection. And you're navigating this type of relationship. And it is a professional relationship. And as a survivor, you're also, again, in my case, I was very fortunate with the, that I didn't have a lot of cognitive challenges, but cognitive or emotional challenges. And now you're putting this other person in this very intimate type of thing, helping you, you know, walk, helping you learn to use the bathroom. I mean, these are things that our parents did when we were like under one. And so you've got that, that, so now you're, you're balancing all of these different relationships and trying to make sense of that in your brain damaged head, that that whole personal relationship you develop becomes very important and key. And as a patient and as a therapist, both have to work to maintain then the appropriate boundaries and the idea of being friendly without having to be friends and having this connection without doing things parents do without having to become an emotional parent. And so I think those become very important things. But subbing in somebody who is just sort of phoning it in, that was one of the frustrating things. From there, I had, you know, great experiences with the at-home rehab. And then I liked my outpatient therapist as well. But again, then we get into the structure of how do you manage this with insurance and how do you manage this with therapeutic goals? And eventually I stopped going to OT outpatient because my newer OT, he was like, I don't really have anything I can do with you. All you can do is just keep doing the exercises on your hand and try and keep going forward from there. And he was right. I mean, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't need to come here and move a ball from one box to another. I can do that elsewhere. But the other value that comes from doing outpatient therapy is that at that point, you're forced to go ahead and do those exercises and to get them done uh, because you have to be there at a certain time. Yeah, Bill, it's like going to the gym, right? If you're going to pay for the membership, whether it's self-pay insurance for therapy, but you're, it's a little bit more of an accountability partner at that point. Well, you brought up a lot of there to unpack. And, and I think the relationship part is huge, you know, and pick the profession. The therapist is just one profession where you need to, A, have common sense clinically, have a good personality that's motivating, right? You want to be motivating and optimistic for your patient's recovery, just like trainers are at the gym. They're very exciting, energetic, motivating. That, that's what you're trying to go for. But then you also have to be able to properly challenge your patients. And the problem I have with the current, this is probably the ugly part of the rehab process, is now you brought up 
the ADL aspect, which, you know, you got to learn how to do those things, which whether it's showering, get independent, because you're going to go home. Mm-hmm. The question is, as a five-year master's certified licensed occupational therapist, do I want to be known as the glorified shower guy? Or do I want to be known as the neuroplastic driver, the changer that's going to maybe get your arm or leg back, right? I don't think therapists sign up to be the shower guy or girl, right? So I think I think the way the... <laughs> Side note, I did, I did have one of my assistant PTs at one point when I had asked him, and I, I ended up asking them all, why did you choose to become a physical therapist? And he was like, well, because his, his partner had worked in OT and he looked at the field and he was like, oh, it's because I decided I didn't want to deal with bodily fluids. And he's like, yeah, it turns yeah. out the joke's on me. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think with the profession and the way the students are taught in school, therapy students, and what the supervisor is telling you at the hospital because of insurance reimbursement, we got to get Bill as independent as possible, as soon as possible, so we can get Bill out of the hospital, Right. And you know, as well as I do, your cortical sweet spot in that subacute phase, it's a ticking process with time, right? We need to get as much healing going in that perilesional area in the brain so we can try to drive new recovery. And if we ignore that because we want to train Bill how to live a one-handed life as quick as possible so he can get a shirt on, that's a lost opportunity. So that's the ugly part of the rehab process from my perspective. If we could change it now, like a magic wand moment, we would not be spending as much time as skilled clinicians teaching you to live a one-handed life in that first two months or first month. That would be someone else, whether it's a nursing assistant, family members, YouTube videos. That's not going to be us. What we're going to focus on is getting your leg and hand back as quickly as possible during that critical window and the appropriate window because we do know research is telling us don't start too early as well. So that part needs to kind of be right. fleshed out. But you brought up a very interesting point about that whole rehab process. And I'm glad you had really good, really good therapists. Now, just switching gears, going through this process, what areas do you think of stroke that we need more research on as far as innovation? Is there something there during your process in 2017, looking back and looking forward? Yeah, we need to research this more to help my recovery for others go faster or accelerate the recovery. Is there any areas lacking that you think we need research on? I think there are I think there's, we've got more work that we can do in handling that immediate acute phase. I mean, what we've seen over the last few years is we've been expanding the TPA window and we've been expanding the mechanical thrombectomy window. But, you know, I was still a wake-up stroke. So I was outside those windows because my last known good was 1.30 in the morning. By the time I got to the hospital, it was 8 in the morning. And yeah, so we didn't really have the opportunity to go ahead and treat that, especially in a small vessel occlusion, which is what I was dealing with, very small blood vessel that was blocked, and which I later learned probably just means that entire blood vessel just collapsed. The clot never really went away. The whole thing just got absorbed. But getting better treatment for that, especially since... It's not like when a stroke happens, suddenly everything just turns off. It's a progressive type of thing. And that's what I found is that over the course of that day, I lost more and more functionality. When I got to the hospital, I could still sort of lift my hand. By the time 3 p.m. rolled around, I couldn't at all. So there's this progressive damage. And if there's more research we're able to do about preventing that damage from getting worse. 
I think there's a lot of progress that can be made there. Beyond that, other areas of research, I think we're we're still just sort of exploring the ideas. I mean, there's a lot of lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of nonsense out there, the hyperbarics and the people who are trying to do stem cells outside of a research context now. And there's all this big picture nonsense where really we need to be more focused on how can we get these smaller results now? How can we get, you know, and it's just getting some of those basics done, but what can we do to go ahead and inspire that? I think another area that I would love to see some more research, and now we're starting to get into that sort of maybe not results for 10, 20 years, but the idea of coming from a technology background, I think restoring from backup. I mean, the idea that with stroke, you've got to accommodate two things. First of all, you've got all of these dead brain cells. And as those get absorbed back, turned into scar tissue, whatever, you're growing new neurons and your neurons are growing more dendrites to establish more connections. It's sort of the physical side of neuroplasticity. So we're able to start replacing this neuronal mass in a certain way. But it's like when your computer dies and your hard drive crashes and you yank that thing out, you can put in a blank hard, a new hard drive, but it's still blank. You can't do anything with it until you restore the data, until you put more data on there. In my case, for example, my right side of my basal ganglia is knocked out. You know what? The left side of my basal ganglia that controls my right hand, that controls my right leg, that's still working just fine. All the data about how to operate those limbs is still in my brain. We just need to figure out how to mirror that and copy that onto those, that new neuronal mass. We can replace that that hardware, but now we need to get the software on there. And we do that through reps. We do that through exercises. We do that through tools. But the data to run the other half of my body, it's still there. Why can't we figure out some way to duplicate that and to upload that and that? So, I mean, obviously, we're talking about big things. We're talking about decades down, you know, decades right. down the road to figure out how to do that. But I would love to see. Well, I'll tell you what, there. the copy and paste technique cortically, I think does make sense. And if you look at some of the latest research, you are seeing ipsilateral when you think of the stroke. And, you, and like you said, if you had a stroke cortically on the left side, it's going to affect your right side physically. It's called the right hemiparesis for the, for the audience. So left side of cortical area is going to affect your right side of your body. What we do now know is the le- it can controls it can also take over the ipsilateral side so your cortical lesion side can also help your impaired side the contralateral side not to confuse folks so if you had a stroke on your left side of your brain and you suffered weakness on your right side your healthy right side of your brain can take over also and improve your right hemipretic side and that research is now coming to light. So the good news is, Bill, maybe we're not too far off from that. And that's a great idea. Let's, why don't we start spending, instead of spending hundreds of thousand dollars, I mean, how many more articles do we need to have on robotic research? Right now, it's the number one <laughs> studied for stroke recovery, RCT. So think about the th- hundreds of thousands of dollars of funding that's applied each year to keep saying the same thing. Robot research is effective, but it, it's better when you combine it with regular therapy. <laughs> So I think we all get it. Okay. It's nice to have, but why not start doing hyperacute that first seven hours? Why don't we do more research there to slow down a progression? And by the way, 
If I hear one more time from a patient that they waited for five hours in the emergency room before someone took them seriously yeah. and they kept getting worse and worse each 30 minutes and they, the first hour in the emergency room, they were able to walk to the bathroom. The third hour in the emergency room, they can no longer walk to the bathroom while they're waiting. Let's spend some money focusing on the first four hours and that ER transition. And, and I was going to say, yeah, exactly. And specifically in that, let's combine that with the other social research, which we're already starting to see that comes out of this, but especially in terms of some of the broader conversations we're having about women in healthcare and about people of color and their experiences with the healthcare system, what we're already seeing is that women and people of color are much less likely to be believed about their symptoms and are more likely to be ignored and to just not get treatment in the proper time frame as compared to as compared to white men. And younger people as well are much more likely to then be encountered as not taken seriously when they present with stroke symptoms in the ER and be told, what drugs have you taken? How much have you had to drink? Seriously, you got to tell us what drugs. No, come on, just tell oh, us what drugs yeah. you're on and just being ignored. And regardless of how much technology we have, how much medication we have, how many procedures we have, if our symptoms are being ignored, whether by ourselves before we call the ambulance or by the medical professionals who are supposed to be caring for us. If our symptoms get ignored, we don't get believed, we can't get access to that life saving and that disability preventing treatment. And we need to be. We need to reconcile that. We need to have more conversations about that. And we you need to do that biological and that anatomical research and that neurology research to get that happening. But we also need to do that social research to figure out how we can address these problems in the ER from a lot of medical professionals who, yes, they're in there and they care, but there's these unconscious biases that permeate this and that so many people have to deal with to really negative effect that ends up costing all of us so much more money and really so much more resources that we are deprived of in this world. Bill, that's uh, it's a great call to action to wrap up this episode. And I think, I don't know about you, Henry, but I want to explore that in another episode. And I want to drill into the very thing you talked about, not only that you experienced, but if there's unconscious bias occurring in the system that's costing people these 30-minute increments and watching their physical capabilities disappear when you could have short-circuited that right away. But again, I don't think most people are aware that this happens. So getting the message out there, a call to action to solve the problem, all good. Bill, where, uh, where do you see your podcast going? I mean, what's another five years, not only kind of charting your journey, but you know, getting more word on the platform like you just did for us today? Well, I, I really just want to continue to reach more survivors because ultimately what i want to do is not just survivors but also professionals in this industry because we could do an entire episode about the siloed nature of the medical medical field and the survivor communities and how everybody is on their own i mean at one point i was asking the one of the therapists in the hospital about a support group that met down the hall and she didn't even know it existed so there's all these different silos that are out there and one of the things i want to do with the show is to help break down some of those silos and help people communicate more across these different constituencies and share these perspectives whether that's going to be doctors understanding patients therapists understanding the doctors and the researchers, patients understanding the perspective of the medical professionals and one another to build that broader community to understand that. I want to continue to do that. I want to continue to reach more new survivors who are 
feel isolated and separated from this community because stroke is such an isolating experience to be able to expand that. And so that simply means helping to get more people listening and aware of that and driving more and more people to strokecast.com. Personally, I would love to be able to ultimately sort of, in some respects, take this show on the road. And professionally, I would love to go ultimately that keynote speaking route, talking at conferences about my journey and about the lessons that I have learned from stroke that apply to survivors and that apply in the broader corporate or professional or medical conference context to be able to provide that further value there. I'm also uh, starting work on a series of books to leverage this experience, in, including currently drafting one called tentatively called Welcome to Stroke World, helping patients understand and their families understand that first six-month experience of what you're going to encounter as you suddenly enter this world and working through that. And all of that comes down from the uh, StrokeCast podcast itself, building community, sharing those stories, and letting more people know that these resources are out there and that I would love to help help more and more people learn from them and get value from my experience. So hopefully they don't have to go through this themselves. So you basically, Bill has nothing planned for the next five years. Yeah, there's, <laughs> no, there's not much, yeah, not much going exactly. on. Exactly. Meanwhile, I'm still working full time uh, <laughs> as a trainer at Microsoft, teaching journalists how to use Microsoft Office. So all of these skills have been applying back and forth. And one of the thing that, things that has been great about my full time role is that I've been able to actually incorporate stroke awareness into my teaching and into my examples and the company has been super supportive of doing that as well so um able to just again get the messages of be fast out there and and share this with more and more people well bill we're going to do a couple things we'll share your contact information in the footnotes of the show and i'm going to write you a a glowing endorsement to be a, a keynote speaker because fantastic in my limited time in the stroke world, Henry's been good about kind of shepherding and being my Sherpa and helping me understand what's going on. <laughs> they need a spokesperson. We need most, because a lot of people are nervous and don't feel like they can communicate properly, but you're an eloquent speaker, very thoughtful host and guest, and more people need to hear your message. So glad you're on the program and we will do whatever we can to help share the message and, and many thanks. Bill, thank, thank you, you so much. You were awesome. Fantastic. Oh, a lot. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for joining us, folks. That's another episode of the No Plateau podcast. And I think we just raised the bar in this one. Bill's going to be a tough act to follow. So thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individuals, and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk.